Hey everybody, how are you? What's going on? What's happening? I'm your host, Jeff Kasuf. This is the Equalizer Podcast, and we are back. It's been a little bit since we've been on, sorting through some different things, including myself personally, on paternity leave, a quasi-paternity leave uh, with our second baby. So thanks for bearing with us on a slight inconsistency of scheduling. We're obviously working through uh, some of that, and uh, we'll get back to our regular stuff soon. But wanted to make sure that we got to a bunch of different things and rounded up uh, some various things. We last came to you after the NWSL championship and broke that down in depth. But um, there's obviously been an international break, plenty of news, and uh, specifically the U.S. Women's National Team, which we cover quite often here. Wanted to get to some different things from there. So I put out a note on Twitter when we all thought it was going to implode and never exist again. And here we are, at least as of this recording, we're all still tweeting and took some of your questions in a mailbag. Got plenty of questions, actually, so not even sure that we can fit them all into a, a reasonably timed segment of a podcast here. So going to try to get to as many as possible, most of them from you all around the U.S. Women's National Team and the NWSL. So going to try to break this up into two parts. We'll talk U.S. Women's National Team and a little bit more broadly the international game and the World Cup upcoming first, and then we'll talk a little bit of NWSL, which is obviously in its off-season, but it should be a busy off-season, free agency for the first time ever. We're expecting some expansion news at some point and uh, plenty of other things developing ahead of 2023, which is is sure to be uh, a very exciting year in the league and certainly, most certainly uh, from a, an international perspective. So going to get to as many as we can here, and I'll try to give you all some shout-outs for the questions, some good ones within here, um, and I'll, I'll try to branch off a little bit into some other things. So first off, thank you for sending these. Thank you for tweeting them at me. I'm at Jeff Kasuf, K-A-S-S-O-U-F, and at Equalizer Soccer is obviously where you can find all of our stuff. For now, I you know, assume that um, hopefully Twitter, it still hasn't broken, so uh, we will we'll still be tweeting there. And if not, you can find us, obviously, EqualizerSoccer.com. Uh, we just got done ra- running a Black Friday, Cyber Monday deal, which was our best deal ever, $12 for an entire year of subscription, which would get you uh, World Cup coverage, the build-up, and the World Cup itself, and the entire NWSL season, which we now know will end uh, right about now. It'll be deeper into no- – it'll be in November again uh, after ending in October this year. But um, go ahead and, and head to EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. That amazing deal – has expired. If you didn't get your hands on it, uh, we have some others upcoming and would love to have you join us uh, for what we're, we're planning to be some great content in the year ahead. So enough of me, although you get more of me in these answers. Let's get to your questions. So again, going to break this down into U.S. and international first off, and um, we're going to start with the U.S. And obviously, uh, a pair of results against Germany since we last joined you. A loss to Germany in the opening game in Florida, uh, which put the U.S. on a three-game losing streak after losing to England and Spain away in Europe in October. They lost to Germany in Florida to start the November window, and that made three straight first time in about three decades that they did that. They've never lost four straight. They had never. They have never. They ended up beating Germany 2-1 uh, to one in the return leg in New Jersey, uh, which was, uh, frankly, you know, as friendlies go, a much-needed victory. I think, you know, results are not everything, certainly in friendlies, uh, but very much a result that the U.S. needed, and and from a confidence perspective as well. I think we saw, even in the Germany game in the first the first outing, uh, there were some signs of positivity. 
Um, you know, I don't think you could say that about the Spain game. The loss in Spain was was horrendous in many ways. Um, in England, I, I think the midfield in particular for the U.S. got bossed around. But again, you know, as we talked about on this podcast in previous episodes, maybe some signs for positivity that Trinity Rodman goal they gets called back on a tight offside call. Maybe you say, okay, that could have been a two-two draw. But uh, Spain result was ugly, and then you know to, to lose three straight after that first Germany result, uh, a big problem for the U.S. But they go into the new year with a victory on their backs, and they will start off the new year in January in New Zealand pair of games in New Zealand for uh, what is basically a World Cup prep camp. Um, they will be playing in the venues where their group stage matches will be in Auckland and Wellington. They got drawn into uh, the the New Zealand group, one of the New Zealand groups, so they'll play their entire group stage in New Zealand, uh, which I'm sure will be a, a nice influx of U.S. fans into a beautiful country there. Um, you know, maybe, I think maybe just de facto, I don't know about you all, but I just kind of, even though it was a co-hosted tournament, I just kind of had Australia sort of front and center in the mind and, and the U.S. gets a New Zealand group. So excited to see, um, personally see, should be both of those. I mean, if they get out of the group in any capacity, they're headed to Australia for their first knockout stage game. So um, I would very much expect them to get out of the group, despite some of the panic alarms that I know some of you are are very readily hitting. So let's get to those. Mariah on Twitter. I hope I'm saying these names right. If I butcher any of your names, I apologize. Um, some of you have uh, pseudonyms in your Twitter handles, but I'll try to shout you out. So Mariah, uh, in what ways is Vlatko Anonofsky, head coach of the U.S., acknowledged uh, either verbally or tacitly lack of success for the U.S. midfield? What do you, meaning me, what do I believe are the top options? And Mariah also asked a separate question about Sam Hughes' knee injury, any more information that we know that we're not sharing? Uh, no, I, I wish that were the case. I think it's been pretty pretty tight-lipped. I, I know that Sam has addressed it um, on her podcast in in some detail, um, but certainly, you know, uh, unfortunate and, and a bit of a mystery that, you know, we're coming up on a year of um, – and I've been here before. I mean, I've covered this team for 12, 13 years now, more than oh – my gosh, more than that, but, um, you know – a lot of times you hear about something that's a quote-unquote minor injury and it turns into something more. And and I think that's why, you know, at least personally, I'm always skeptical of the, the terminology. It's not always the case, but it happens. And, and this is a case where this started as, you know, something that was sort of a niggling preseason thing uh, turned into to something else. And then Sam U.S. goes the entire regular season without playing a minute and um, still has not returned. So, uh, hopefully for the U.S., I think that's a big piece of the other question as regards to the U.S. midfield, which, you know, I think if we're talking about the U.S., we can get into, and I've, I've said this before, we can get into all sort of personnel conversations of who's the best fit for this specific position, who's in the depth chart one versus two, who's missing from the team. You know, there's plenty of that. I mean, the forward line, I think, with the, the caveat here being Katarina Macario, where she fits in in the nine and the ten, but, um, you know, the forward line, obviously, I think you've got your three MVP frontrunners from the NWSL this season in, in Alex Morgan, uh, Mallory Pugh, and then the winner of that award, Sophia Smith, you know, is pretty set. I think you've got an idea of what works in in various other positions, but from a, a really, like, what are we doing here question, existential thing, the midfield, you have plenty of talent on an individual basis. Um you know, to the point of this question from Mariah, it has, it has not really always, or has rarely looked in sync this year. And, and that midfield trio really for the, I would say, 
more or less the entirety of the year once you get through those spring matches of experimentation has been Rose Lavelle, Lindsey Horan, and Andy Sullivan. And that's obviously Sullivan in the holding position and then Horan and Lavelle in uh, some varying levels depending on what the, the game plan for the, the specific day has been. But, um, you know, obviously Lavelle in a 10, Horan typically in in an eight box to box that has varied in sort of a double six, double 10 at times. But um, that's been the trio. What, uh, so, so first off from Mariah's question, has Vlako Andonovsky acknowledged the lack of success? I don't think you'll ever hear that terminology come out of him. Uh, certainly not in a public frame of, of mind. Um, you know, he's been asked about it plenty. I, I think in many, in many instances, he's rebutted against the, the thought that, uh, things haven't worked. I think at times when they really haven't worked, you know, Spain being one of them, I'd have to go back and really look at exact, uh, some of the exact quotes from him in, in when they came exactly. But for the most part, he's been, uh, I don't want to use the term defensive, but, but fairly confident in how they've performed, even despite, you know, some of the performances that maybe, um, you know, us from the outside that we have, uh, we from the outside have, have thought were not that great. So in, in short, no. Um, and, and I don't know that that means that, He's he's blind to any issues. I mean, you know, I will say this from, you know, covering him since the beginning of the NWSL, almost NWSL, almost 10 years ago. Um, you know, he, he's definitely like, you know, I don't know anybody who studies more uh, film, more coaching, um, more tactical, you know, anything than, than he does. And that's not to say, I'm sure, you know, that's that's the job of a coach, especially at a top level. But um the idea that he's unaware of, of potential issues or or not addressing them in any way is is um, just not true, I'm sure. But you know, what are the what are the options? I mean, that is, I think, the question that will define success for this U.S. Women's National Team at the World Cup because I don't think that this midfield, particularly as we've seen uh, in the past four games against three of the world's top teams, including a Spain team that you know, with respect to them, was a B team, missing so many of its stars as as that federation fights with its players. Um, the U.S. midfield, in particular, the way that it is lined up has not worked. So what is a what is a solve to that? Well, Sam Mewis is missing. Obviously, I think that, you know, that is a, a potentially a big solve. Now, who does Mewis replace, right? A like for like is probably Haran. I don't think that swap gets made because, um, you know, for one, I mean, Haran is, is kind of a, a vice captain on this team at this point. And uh, I think pretty clearly part of Andonovsky's bigger plans. So, you know, Lavelle is not coming out. Um, I, I think even when Macario is healthy, you try to figure out if, if Macario is not the nine, which obviously the year that Morgan had, you know, really uh, makes that a difficult, you know, Alex Morgan, dropping Alex Morgan is pretty difficult in the form she's in. Um, you could say the same about what Katarina Macario in the form she was in before she tore her ACL late spring. But, you know, at that point, if you're thinking about how do I get my best players on the field, you're probably thinking about Lavelle and Macario in a double 10. And then if you do that, which I'm not saying that Andonovsky does it because there, there are certainly some risks to that. Maybe you do that against a team, you know, let's look at the group stage. Maybe you do that against Vietnam and you see how it goes. Um, but I just don't know that uh, maybe you do it against Portugal if you if you end up seeing them or whoever comes through from that playoff. But I don't know that that's the, the long-term everyday plan. But if you do that, you really need some solidity in that 
defensive midfield position. And specifically, you really need, uh, I would say, to, to borrow one of Ananovsky's terms, a destroyer in that position, because he's talked about, um, excuse me, warriors, artists and warriors. And, and in Macario and Lavelle in a double 10, I can't think of a more artistic attacking combination in the midfield than that and putting that behind Pugh, Smith, and Morgan, and that front five, let's call it, and how they can work off of each other. I think it'd be a nightmare for any defense in the world. But what does that look like behind it? You know, in in yesteryear, maybe you've got um, a center back combination that you're you're confident with, and you can kind of live with one holding midfield in front of them, and and um, you know, again, maybe that holding midfield. I mean, 2015 cycle, Ertz, Julie Johnson at the time was the center back. 2019, she was that holding midfielder. And we'll, we'll get to this um, other question here that's related. But, um, you know, who's that going to be? And Andy Sullivan is is more of a deep-lying playmaker than she is a, a destroyer, a, a ball winner. I think she is, you know, would fit into the category of warrior from, from Andonofsky. But in terms of, uh, you know, to... We'll get to this question, but it's it's really hard to not compare this. Uh, whoever's in this position, Ertz, right? I mean, that's uh, the person who defined the position for several years. Um, I don't want to say abruptly disappeared. I mean, obviously, I think everybody quite happy for her that why she's not on the scene at the moment, um, uh, having given birth to her first child. But, you know, it, it's difficult to not compare it. And, and in Ertz, you had somebody where you could allow for a more aggressive attacking standpoint and go after a team and know that if you get broken, if your high press gets broken, if those two central midfielders in front of her get beat, you have a rock-solid uh, defensive center midfielder who has the athleticism to, to get out wide and cover, who can win balls in the middle, who seemingly will win every 50-50 challenge. Obviously, that's hyperbola, but um, there, there is no replacement for her or that right now, and, and who knows when there will be. Um, so, you know, if you go double 10 there, and I would love to see Lavelle Macario as a double 10, and, and obviously you have an Ashley Sanchez who could, who could slot in there as well. Where do you go from there? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, from there you could say Haran or Mewis in the six, a little bit more of that bite. You still have both of those profiles are still more deep lying playmaker than they are destroyer. Um, I think that probably the greatest argument there might be, you know, for, for the closest to that, and it's still not quite fitting that bill, but would be Haran. Um, but a healthy Mewis, obviously with her size, in addition to her her ball distribution, um, you know, I think that could be an option. But I, I think this is the question, in addition to the center back position, that really will define whether the U.S. wins the World Cup or um, goes out very early or somewhere in between, because those are the ones right up the spine of the team. You have to have a healthy spine. I think we can talk about who's going to play fullback, what's that going to look like. Um, I don't think there's any question about the wingers, but you have to have a healthy spine. And I think you're talking about by the time the World Cup kickoff comes, I think it's got to be at center back, Naomi Gurma plus who. And and I think if you, you're saying right now, it's probably Becky Sauerbrunn. Um, and then from there, you know, who's in that midfield. And, and I think that's going to define the U S uh, one way or another. So I don't know that there's a good answer right now, Mariah. I mean, I think Sam coffee fits, um, brings a lot to the table again, does not necessarily profile in that way of like a, a pure 
ball winner, um, but I, I think has a lot of interesting characteristics that, that should get more of a look. I know I've, I, I think, um, not in this call for questions, but I have had people ask me about Jalen Howell and why she's not uh, in the mix more. Um, don't necessarily know the answer to that specifically. She has been in and around the team, obviously. But, um, you know, I think that that's, um, you know, I think that she could be a, a possibility. But, you know, there's there's a lot of, I could name four or five players here who maybe slide into that. And I'm not sure that any of them necessarily solve it. So um, maybe I'll bridge the gap here. And I was going to save this for the NWSL section. But since it's it's come up, because it was framed as uh, an Angel City question, but this is even more so, I'd say, a U.S. question to my point earlier. Uh, Soccer Fanatic and Michael Yeager, hopefully I get your last name right, asking for updates on Julie Ertz. I don't have any. I don't know many people who do have any. I don't know anybody who had any this time last year other than what is out there, which is obviously um, – Eventually, we found out that you know she was expecting her first child, and then has since had um, that child. And and um, again, congratulations to her. I, I don't have any updates on what her future looks like uh, in soccer. Period. You know, going forward, I, I think you know I, I would just be speculating. It could be any number of things. Obviously, you know, I, I think anybody listening to this is as observant as I am. That you know, it's been a while since we've seen her. Obviously, even even before. Uh, we knew, you know, the news and the reasoning, and uh, we haven't heard a lot about her. And, and just, you know, from a news perspective, obviously, um, she never signed with Angel City after being traded there, her rights being traded there from Chicago. And um, she is actually a free agent. So in theory, she could never play for Angel City, but still play again in the NWSL. Who knows? Um, we'll see. But I don't have a, a tangible update other than more so to the U.S. front, what I just mentioned Um you know, a huge hole and, and void to fill. And um, I think, you know, if she's back and back in the way that, you know, so many people know her before the World Cup, I think that answers a lot of questions that, that we are talking about here and, and changes my outlook on on the U.S. period. So um, we'll see what happens. Um, back to the, the midfield uh, Zippity B, like the like the name there. Could Lavelle and Haran switch places with Pew and Smith? Um, question talks about leveraging their their athleticism, and uh, I mean, short answer, <laughs> respectfully, no. Um, you know, Pew and Smith are, are out and out wingers. I mean, certainly, let, let me rephrase that. They are out and out wingers on this team. They can also play as nine. Smith even more so, obviously, as she did for for Portland. Um, Mallory Pugh can play in the nine, but. More so than that, I mean, Lavelle can play as a winger, and we've seen that at times. I think, much to the chagrin of many at Manchester City, we saw that um, better utilized in that when necessary at OL Reign so far by Laura Harvey. And uh, at times, we've seen her drift wide for the U.S. And I think, you know, you'll see her on that front line, right? I, I mean, the U.S. It's varied under Vlakonanovsky, but defends. I mean, we talk about formations, and they they line up in a four-three-three, but they defend in a a 4-4-2 variant. It's really been a 4-2-4 lately when they press, and, and it's Lavelle who goes in a 9-10 press with Morgan, and, and that puts Lavelle high with Morgan centrally, and uh, Smith and Pugh either and or uh, high up there in, in a 4-2-4 press, and, and I think lately, at least somewhat, we've seen that that nuance of against Germany, Smith dropped in really, really f- much farther on the right side. But um, so, so you can see Lavelle higher on that line, but there's no way Lavelle and Haran are, are wingers on this team, given the amount of talent that you have on the wings. I mean, Smith and Pugh are the clear starters. 
Uh, and then you obviously have Trinity Rodman, who I think could be a real impact player coming off the bench if she can get some some further international experience ahead of the World Cup, um, and and quite a few, uh, really quite a few players. I, I think even players who have not not been capped yet, um, and and the most recent cap obviously being Alyssa Thompson in that position. So. Um, to that point, Katie Ines, again, hopefully I got your name right. Apologies if I if I got the name wrong. People butcher my last name all the time, so I, I, I empathize. Um, who will get their first U.S. Women's National Team call-up in January? Let me preface this with uh, two things. Uh, again, the news of U.S. is heading to New Zealand for two games in January. This is outside of a FIFA window, which really isn't a problem for the U.S. because almost their entire team, if, you know, with Macario especially, and I guess Haran maybe is the big question mark, but almost everybody plays in the NWSL right now, and that is um, obviously in its off-season, so January camp, not a big deal. New Zealand has players based in Europe. We'll see what happens there, but um, so that is who they're playing. Again, uh, I will preface this with, I do not have intel on this. I'm not breaking news. I'm simply answering the question in this mailbag style. If I had to take a shot, um, I think that this could go a number of ways, but um, Katie, I, I would love to see to the winger question, uh, Jaden Shaw. I wonder if, and this is obviously uh, forward for San Diego Wave, 17 turned 18, um, you know, came into the league. Uh, we now have a rule for it. Bless us that we have a rule for it finally in a quasi homegrown player rule of sorts. Um, but Came into the league this summer after training with the Washington Spirit. Rights claimed by San Diego. Stepped in immediately. Scored in her first three games as a 17-year-old. I mean, uh, showed that she is an exceptional player, I think, for, for many years to come. U.S. Youth National Team product. I'm speculating here, but a little bit with some some conversations that, that I've had just through the league and through different contexts. But, you know, I wonder if that call-up for Alyssa Thompson, um, you know, you wonder... If you're looking at that in October, in that October window, and you say, you know, high schooler uh, versus Jaden Shaw, who's performed so well in a similar position, you know, maybe why not go with Shaw, who's maybe a little bit farther along the line, although I think, you know, Thompson got her first caps, showed some things. Um, my, my interpretation, or my guess anyway, would be that, you know, Shaw was in the middle of a, a playoff run to come with San Diego. San Diego had already pulled back Morgan and Korniak, Taylor Korniak, for uh, injuries that they were dealing with. So, you know, I, I think if that was a conversation, which I don't know if it was, but if that was a conversation between Ananovsky and Casey Stoney, you know, that was probably not the right time to try to call in Jaden Shaw, but January would be, and I think she'd be, she'd be justified. So, you know, I, I think that's, um, that would be one that I'd be interested to see. And then, you know, the number six position we've talked about the center back position too, I think, you know, um, I don't know that there's a great answer on the center back front. I mean, you've got Abby Dahlkemper's hurt. You know, you've got sort of your three best American center backs um, in there at the moment. Uh, you know, I think, you know, there, there are players who perform well in the league. So does, um, you know, does a Tatum Malazzo as, as one example of a, a center back that I think did well, Elizabeth Ball, you know, does somebody get a shot in the January camp? I think if they don't, they're probably not getting it before the World Cup. But this would be a time time to see them. So we'll see. It's not your traditional January camp, though. Usually this is um, usually this is assemble 
30 some odd players in California inter squad scrimmage, play a boys team, see what happens. This is a World Cup year in the World Cup co host nation, and, and I think it'll be a little bit more limiting in opportunities from that perspective. So um, we'll see. Uh, Mariah again had asked, What is your assessment of the U.S. women's national team repeating as World Cup champs? I think there was a 1 to 10. Uh, assessment on this, but they were reversed in how I would have thought they were one to ten. So I'm just going to say this: I don't think they're the favorites right now. Um, in 2015, I didn't think they were at all. In 2019, I thought they were clear favorites, and right now, I don't think they are at all. And maybe they'll embrace that. You know, I think I don't think there's any arguing with that position after the past four games that we've seen against England, Spain, and Germany. And you know, you look at the European champions, England. Um, you look at some other teams. I mean, I think even. I'm not going to say Canada's in a, a better place because obviously we just saw a U.S.-Canada matchup, and I think that was probably the best performance, you know, in in-game management and and performance period and and life and and um, confidence and everything that you want to see from a U.S. team. I think the U.S.-Canada Concacaf final was probably the best of that that they've played this year. But um, you know, you've got Canada, you've got you could have Sweden looming in the round of 16 if you if you trip up in the group stage. Um, you know, I, I'm really interested to see how Brazil performs with all of the talent that they've always had now with some of the more defensive discipline and organization from, from Pia Sinhaga. Um, I think there are more teams than ever that could contend here, more teams than ever that could give a top world team a problem on a given day. So to answer your question in, in more general terms without a number, you know, if you're asking me right now, Yes or no, do they repeat for a third straight World Cup title? I say no, and I've said that. And um, I think there's plenty of time for that to change. I could well change my mind in a few months. We could, all of these different personnel things we're talking about, you know, the U.S. has traditionally come together, built momentum in the spring, and then built it into the World Cup. So that answer could change right up into June, July, August even. I mean, you know, but um, right now, no, I'm not I'm not overly confident. Um, but I will say, and I wrote this, if you can win the group, if you're the U.S., you've got a really favorable path to the final. You avoid so many trap teams. Um, you end up on the side where, you know, you've got that weak Group A that New Zealand is the seeded team. I mean, you've got a lot going in your favor getting drawn into where you did. So uh, I think that's the one saving grace to really say, even if some of these things don't get sorted out, they could be good enough to to make a really deep run and maybe win a third straight World Cup title. So um, I am I'm as interested as all of you to see where that goes. Uh, I'll wrap this up with a, a bit more of a general one, but it does relate to the U.S. Uh, let me see. Sorry, who asked this? It was oh, – I didn't write down who asked this. Shame on me. Oh, here it is. Mike McGrew. Um, who – What's the exact question? Any word on FIFA World Cup 2027 bidding deadline? It's only four and a half years away. Timeline seems pretty short. Tell me about it, Mike. I ask this every cycle. It drives me nuts. Um, not that it helped us that we are currently looking at a World Cup in Qatar and all the catastrophes of that, but the Men's World Cup, eight years in advance, several cycles in advance. We know where it's going, and the Women's World Cup, every freaking cycle is Where's it going to be? And we get to the next World Cup. We got to France and we said, where's it going to be? We don't know. And I, it's just wild. It, it just falls into this theme, this ongoing theme of undervaluing women's sports, women's soccer, uh, FIFA undervaluing this World Cup that they have, the Women's World Cup. And the fact that we don't know where it's going, that we can't 
you know, there are sort of tangible marketing points of getting to 2023 and saying, okay, join us again in four years in wherever. Um, but it's also just a planning perspective. Like you need time to plan these things. It's now a 32 team tournament. You need time to plan that. You want to optimize it. You want to make sure you're making the best choice. And it drives me nuts that, that every four years we're asking, okay, well, we know where this one is. Well, where's the next one? And again, we're asking the same thing about 2027. Why does it relate? Because for what, three years now, four years? I mean, it's just been like this nonchalant. It's been almost flippant from several regimes of, of U.S. soccer now that they're interested in 2027. Um, that's where that remains, that they have not officially bid, but there are no official bids yet. I don't have a timeline. It's sometime next year. I don't know when. Um, I've asked that of FIFA, and, and I haven't gotten a, a straight answer, but, um, you know, the U.S. might bid on either the 2027 or 2031 World Cup. Obviously, the Men's World Cup predominantly in the U.S. co-hosted with Mexico and Canada in 2026. So, um, I think there's pros and cons to that, but you know, um, you know, you could you can go Google some things like I can. You can pull up whatever you want on Wikipedia here of some of the some of the federations, confederations that have have said similar things. Um, and honestly, this is how it goes, right? I mean, 2015 started as a bunch of different places interested. They drop out, they drop out. Same thing happened in 2019, and eventually you get down to well, in 2015, Canada was the only the only place remaining. There was no vote. There was there was nothing. Zimbabwe pulled out. World Cup goes to Canada. Nothing against Canada, but doesn't exactly drive, uh, you know, competition drives greatness and it doesn't exactly demand that we get the best of every bid and every venue when there is no competition. But, um, you know, there's, there's been stuff from, uh, I believe Colombia recently even might have said something again. Um, although, Again, I, I think that was 2019 as well that they were in that conversation. Um, you know, we, we've seen a bunch of different things. I do think the joint bid will be interesting. You know, we've heard of the the Belgium, Germany, Netherlands joint bid. Um, that is interesting. You know, Germany has obviously hosted before previously, um, as has the U.S. I'd be really interested if the U.S. somehow turned into a joint bid with Mexico, perhaps. Um you know, I think that there could be some synergy there. Again, just speculating. Um, and then we did hear over the summer about South Africa having interest. And obviously South Africa now, the defending African champions, um, having won the tournament, having won AFCON over, over the summer, heading into this World Cup. You know, South Africa goes to the Men's World Cup in 2010, first, first World Cup on, on African soil. So there is some precedent there. I do think it is beyond time for... FIFA to branch out beyond Europe, Asia, North America, and and obviously Australia, New Zealand is is branching out. You know that's Oceania. Um, you know Australia plays in in the Asian Football Confederation, but you know this is a branch out of sorts in 2023. But South America, Africa, there there need to be women's World Cups on this. Now they need to be organized properly. They need to be sound bids, and and there needs to be a plan, but. If those plans stack up, then, you know, faced with go to Africa or South America for the first time and a comparable bid and, and make an impact in a country on a continent versus going back to a U.S., back to a Germany, back to somewhere you've been, let's make it happen. I mean, it's got to happen. It can't just keep being delayed. So um, that's where I stand on 2027. But Mike, to answer you, nothing official, infuriating. Um, hopefully we get some news soon and 
Uh, we'll, we'll see. I don't know. I know I'm going to New Zealand and, and partly Australia in 2023. I hope to see some of you there. Um, guess I'll figure out where we're going four years from now. Who knows? Maybe in a couple of years. <laughs> I think we'll probably have an answer by the end of 2023. That would be the same timeline as this past cycle, but it shouldn't be. We should know where we're going in 2027, and we should know where we're going in 2031 soon. That's how I feel. All right. That's about a half hour. So enough on the U.S. women, enough on international. We'll come back after the break talking National Women's Soccer League in this offseason. Plenty of stuff happening. So stick with me here on the Equalizer podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Equalizer podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Jeff Kasuf, And please go ahead and rate and review this podcast. It helps us. You know my spiel. Give us those five stars. Helps us circulate uh, and resurface and be discoverable for everybody that's looking for us, looking for some women's soccer content. It is very much the time that people are looking for that because the World Cup is around the corner. And of course, as I said before, equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. You will get all of our best content. I just talked about the U.S. Blair Newman, who does some amazing tactical work for us. Just in the past couple weeks, if you're looking for it, go to our Extra tab or our USWNT tab on the menu. Did a four-part series on what is and is not working with the U.S. Women's National Team. Everything that I just talked about here, he dove dove into in even greater depth. Screenshots, uh, tactical halos and highlights, uh, GIFs, everything that you need to really understand uh, the tactics, what's working, what isn't, and what could be done before the World Cup. So that's a subscriber-only benefit. A lot more of that coming, a lot more of that every day. Really encourage you to get with us there, uh, equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. Excited to get into another World Cup year where I really am confident that, you know, traditionally, uh, historically, we've delivered the best content around the U.S. Women's National Team. We've really delivered on-site at World Cups, and we will absolutely do that again in New Zealand and Australia next summer. And uh, I want you to be a part of it. I appreciate you being a part of it. Uh, we will get to the NWSL now in this mailbag. We're doing this mailbag as part of a, a little bit of our our yearly wrap-up on the pod. We'll have a little bit more of that to come, but uh, a good time to do these. So NWSL, what, what's big in the offseason, right? It's free agency for the first time ever uh, since we've recorded this pod. We've seen a couple of moves from Gotham actually now. One official, one unofficial. One they got fined for, I guess, for being unofficial, but announcing it, what's new? I'd love to see the NWSL direct some of that energy toward teams that are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, as in hosting press conferences or making announcements and meeting deadlines, uh, in addition to finding teams for announcing things early. Um, but it seems that the Kelly O'Hara quasi-announcement, uh, O'Hara to Gotham as a free agent, uh, is happening. It hasn't necessarily officially gone by way of the league paperwork or announcement, uh, as of this recording anyway, but uh, the defender moving from the Washington spirit where I think she pretty much said here that she expected to end her career um, is is headed to Gotham. So a big move there. And then Abby Smith, goalkeeper, uh, signing this week with with Gotham. So in theory, um, obviously Michelle Betos and, and Hensley Handcuff there, but um, I think Abby Smith looks like you would think has been brought in to be the number one in the immediate. So uh, a couple moves there on the free agency front and some big free agents. We said Ertz is a free agent. We don't know what she's doing, but um, Dabinia is a free agent. The longer that this goes without, you know, teams, players could have re-signed with their teams before the November 15th free agency window. Um, the window opened in August, 
you know, that's why they could have re-signed with their team. So uh, I guess that was the restricted period, let's call it, uh, for, for artistic license. But um, November 15th, they could have signed with other teams. The longer that we get beyond that, we're two weeks gone now, that Dabinia hasn't re-signed with North Carolina, some of these other bigger names. I mean, Christine Sinclair has re-signed with Portland uh, since we last spoke, or maybe it was maybe it was before we last spoke even. But, um, you know, you wonder, is it happening? Because if it was going to happen, well, they've had months to get that deal done, right? And and here we are on the, the cusp of December. And I'll add, you know, we can't look at this as an isolated, insular thing in a vacuum, you know, NWSL free agent, but free agent period. I, I mean, free to make a move abroad. And, and a player like Dabinia, one of the best in the world, is going to have offers. So, um it's the free agency period. It's also coming up on the winter transfer window for a lot of places. So uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens there. Um, Todd Roman, where will team number 14 be? And this is addressing the big topic. I would say the big business topic of the offseason expansion. And and um, so I've previously reported um, here for ESPN several months ago uh, in June, frankly, even though this has been sort of resurfacing lately, um, Utah Royals. Uh, I don't want to call them the Royals because we don't know if that'll be the case. Utah, the Salt Lake City market, um, has, uh, when they left that market, the NWSL, which was December 2020, they left, replaced by Kansas City, and a return to Kansas City. The the league calls it a folding and an expansion team. It's a relocation for all intents and purposes, but there was contracted into the folding agreement by now ex-commissioner Lisa Baird was the right to return to the market in 2023. Um, now, that's not happening in 2023. It is almost certainly happening in 2024. It's, it's certainly happening is, is the bottom line. And it looks like um, 2024 will be the year that'll be Utah plus one. Now, the, the thing that uh, is, is really going to, or has already been grinding gears around the league uh, for incumbent owners who are obviously, you know, trying to grow the league and, and grow their valuations and, and everything else is that was seen as a terrible deal to be made um, by Lisa Baird with that market or in that contract because uh, it allowed for whoever purchased Real Salt Lake, uh, which ended up being Ryan Smith, David Blitzer, and, and that group at large, um, to have the option to bring back Utah at a set rate, which was by all reporting I've done, uh, a shade under two million at the time of in the contract, and that has since gone up to. Uh, I've heard different numbers, so it's it's not gone up significantly, but it's gone up uh, from the initial as some sort of a way to bridge this gap because the NWSL is out here talking about how they could get fifty million dollars for the other expansion team that's going to come in at the same time, and the dichotomy of a two million dollar and fifty million dollar is. Uh, I wouldn't want to be the person paying the 50 and, and have to put up with that, even even if you can say, well, this was contracted years ago. Um, so, by the way, that's not going to be 50. I'm, I'm very confident. Um, everything that I've done reporting on this, it was looking like maybe 10 million as a fee. It's gone up with in confidence with the bidding wars of sorts that it'll be in the 20 range is is where I'm confident saying in the 20 million range. Um, and that's to say between 20 and 30 is, would be my, where I would bet that it lands, but still that's 10 X roughly what we're talking about for the other Utah. Um, 
So, Todd, where will it be? Um, I don't, I don't, frankly, and I'm not being cheeky here. I don't know a specific city because we've heard about the interest. We've heard about dozens of NDAs signed, non-disclosures. Um, we've heard about all the different formal bids. You know, the handful of them. Um, I'd be repeating some of the markets, maybe even irresponsibly, because we've sort of moved into a different stage here, where I think some of them have dropped out of the ones that have sort of been public. The you know, the various MLS markets that sort of talk about an NWSL team in passing and some of these other markets that are independent, which include, uh, would be independent, which include the Bay Area in, in Northern California. Um, what I, I am pretty confident in from all the reporting I've done is that team number 14 is going to be in a big market is is what I would say. And I mean that from a media perspective. I mean it from a reach perspective. The league wants and feels that it is worth major money in its next rights deal for TV and streaming. And it looks at this massive deal that uh, MLS just got with Apple. It looks at the sports rights industry uh, trends, which are trending upward for everybody, you know, millions becoming tens of millions, becoming hundreds of millions, becoming billions. And the NWSL sees itself in that why not us category. So there is a feeling, and, and I think rightfully so, that to get big money like that, you've got to be in big markets. You can't, you can't just say, "Here's a big time game. We're going to put it on big TV," and you know, I don't even want to use an example because somebody's going to get mad at me out there. But you can't be in these mid-major markets and and get that. Is the feeling around the league, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I think it'd be wrong to say that any mid-major market, quote-unquote, that's already there is a problem. But um, when you have the opportunity to choose as you're doing the expansion process, it's going to be a big market. So, you know, of the ones we know publicly, you look at it and say, well, shoot, the Bay Area, San Francisco, that's a top 10 media market. Um, you know, I think that's a huge advantage for some of these these areas. Um, you know, you, you can go Google what you know, some of these big markets are the, the NWSL is in about half of the top 10 markets. And um, I, I'd be really curious to see how this goes. And um, the general guidelines here are going to be good ownership, the right venues, which are really key, whether that's renting, whether you're building one, showing ambition, and, and obviously um, the investment. And that's going to be the upfront money, but also what are you putting into it? And, and you see what like Washington's doing with Michelle Kang and how much are you spending beyond an expansion fee? What are you going to put into the team? Are you going to build a training facility? Are you going to build a stadium? Are you going to invest in staff? So that's going to be a big – those are kind of the pillars as I've written. And um, I just really think that when we get down to it, a big media market like a San Francisco, if they have everything else, and that's a big if, is going to be – and let me be clear here that I'm not saying it's going to be San Francisco, which would be probably San Jose in this case. But um, yeah, I think that if we get down to a final three or so and we're really sort of – it's getting hashed out in the boardroom, I think we're going to see a big market win out over uh, a comparable bid from a smaller market. And we'll see how that goes. Uh, that gets to – Kerry Moore asked me, uh, chances of Columbus getting a team. I mean, greater than zero, but – uh, to that conversation, you know, Columbus has been um, a good, but I would say at times, I don't want to call it a tricky market for MLS. It, it's, you know, it's obviously not a, a top 10 market. It's not a major, major uh, 
you know, you, you could leverage it into obviously Ohio is not the biggest state and, and you've got um, some different, um, you know, I guess metro areas that can somewhat bleed into each other as far as TV is concerned anyway, um, or at least even, you know, fans that could travel a couple of hours. But, um, you know, I, I've, you know, Columbus has been reported as a potential independent bid. Um, I've, I've heard some of those rumblings as well. Not a lot of detail. I mean, I have some theories about what that could look like and whether that would be good or not. But, um, you know, what I just said, I, if Columbus is in there against some of these major cities with, with the right backing of financial backing with the right, um, infrastructure, I, you know, there's so much focus on this TV deal and the limited number of teams that are available, spots that are available in this league that probably, probably in the near future anyway, doesn't go beyond 16 teams that I think the league's going to want to be in big markets. And I think that could be, that's a, that's an uphill battle for, a Columbus or or something comparable and and you know again not not insulting to Columbus it's not small town USA but um, th there's a lot of focus on TV here I think um, Taysom Hillstan is the Twitter handle it says shout out to New Orleans um, Idir I hope I got your name right sorry if I did not um, I, I know we've interacted on Twitter um, worried about Utah and women's rights so this is this is related to the expansion so. Commissioner, NWSL Commissioner Jessica Berman asked about it over the summer and I believe again recently said that women's reproductive rights and the laws around them will be important to where the NWSL goes next. So again, I mean, if you want to narrow it down to major markets to that as a filter, filter that, filter major markets, you know, you can eliminate some right away. I mean, there's been a lot of talk of some different Texas markets some big questions there, but um, to the UTOPS point specifically, um, I think the NWSL is going to get asked this question a lot, and rightfully so. And I think I can I can almost guarantee their response is going to be this: some version of we will work with local law you know enforcement or not not law enforcement local lawmakers to uh, improve this, but. This was a contractual agreement made years ago before such laws were in place. That, that's going to be the version of their their uh, crisis management of sorts on that. Um, and, and that's what it is. They've got a contractual arrangement that if the new owner of Real Salt Lake wants a women's team, an NWSL team in Utah, they can have it at a set price. Said owners have said publicly they plan to execute that option. And and that's really the answer to that. Um, so everything from there, you know, we'll see how they handle it. Um, what else do we have? Uh, da -da. Mr. Bob Dobalena, uh, which teams make, which team can make the most improvements this off season? Which has the most work to do? I'm going to go big market theme here because I think they are applicable. Most work to do, Gotham. Uh, I think that. Gotham made the wrong moves in a lot of ways with who they shipped out. Yes, there was some talk of those players wanting to go, sure. Um, who they shipped out, who they brought in, they got older. They were an older team that got older last offseason, and it clearly didn't work out. Uh, a last-place finish, 12 games without a win, uh, you know, six-game losing streak. I mean, it was just – it was um, – it was not good. Uh, Twelve game losing streak. Excuse me. So, it, it was a bad season in New York, New Jersey. I guess you have to say only way only way is up from here. Um, 
you would hope that's the case, but certainly the most work to do. And I think it's a pivotal off season for them to get things right because I don't think that they did last season. Um, and, and they've got a lot to figure out on the field and off. And obviously Juan Carlos Amaros saw something in that project to, to leave Houston on that interim basis where I think a lot of people assumed he might take over full time given the success that he brought. Um, to leave that for the Gotham project, you know, he must, he must see something there. So interested to see where that goes. Um, most work to do though, for sure. And then who can make the most improvements this off season? I, I do think it's Angel City in LA because, um, you know, I think there's an argument that they overperformed in, in finishing just outside of the playoffs. Um, but I think that was probably, um, a rightful sort of landing spot for them. And, and where do you go from here? Um, you know, you look at what they did given some of the limitations, which I've talked about in some positions. Absolutely. I mean, fullback, clear example. Um, depth concerns that they had, that they knew they were going to have coming into the season. Um, you look at the injuries they sustained. Sarah Gordon, straight from the get-go. Julie Ertz obviously never showed up for, you know, for a camp to play. And, and we talked about earlier, you know, was expecting her first child. Um then Vanessa Gilles, who, you know, could be one of the best center backs in the world and, and in the league and, you know, had some injury struggles and then goes on loan to Lyon. Um, and then obviously I think the big one, you know, Kristen Press, who was clearly the focal point from, from day one as the first signing, but even, you know, in the way the team played early on in the Challenge Cup and then early in the season, was going to carry this team on her back and blows her ACL, tears her ACL in... um in June, which was a huge blow for this team, for her, obviously, in many ways. And, you know, I think um, you look at all of those absences, you expect some returns in that in that sense. And then you look at, you know, the ability this offseason to fill some voids. And I think for maybe the first time in, in earnest, um, the ability to fill some of these holes um, one with a proof of concept for the market, right? I mean, I think any women's player around the world probably saw highlights at the minimum from LA and said, wow, would I love to play there? And you could say that for Barcelona. You could say that for a handful of clubs globally in terms of the atmosphere. But I mean, this is it in the NWSL right now. It, playing in LA is is like, that's going to be the place to be. Uh, for a lot of players within the league and a lot of players globally. So you've got that working to your advantage for um, free agency and international signings. And, you know, you're not constrained to building a little bit through the expansion draft, even if you were leveraging that last year. So now you have kind of a freedom of going out into the open market, going into the free agency market. Uh, I think you've got a base here of some solid players. I think you've got some, some very good players who you expected to play last year and didn't, um, you know, the, the catchy thing that the catch with, with Gilles is, you know, she goes to Lyon, then she goes to the world cup. And by the time she gets back, it's, it's again, like maybe a half a season. Um, you know, hopefully we see Sarah Gordon in full and back to how she was playing in 2021 with Chicago. Do we see Julie Ertz? Hopefully we see Kristen press relatively early on in the year. Um, so I think that there's there's a lot to be excited about there. And and even, you know, I'd even say, you know, Sydney LaRue, I think, was a savvy move by the club to bring in LaRue as Press's replacement after the injury. And then LaRue gets hurt and misses a significant amount of time. So, you know, 
those names that I just rattled off, you get them back on the field, you add some key components in the offseason through the transfer market, whether internally in the league or outside of it. And I think think that's probably the team that... um, can really make a jump this offseason from from where they were but we'll see i uh, will see i mean look at 22 right 2022 this this league can go a number of ways um dave montgomery what does ol rain need to do to finally get a star above their crest dave this is like the golden question um you know look i thought i thought they did as much as they could this year and does that mean this is the ceiling on on things i don't know um you know, Jess Fishlock remains spectacular. Megan Rapino still had an amazing second half of the season and looks, you know, every bit of her her usual self. So I don't think anybody's necessarily dropped off. I, obviously, you know, I'm not being disrespectful and just stating the obvious, as I've stated this year when, when we were seeing if they could get the job done, that this veteran group doesn't have a lot of time left. And, and this really felt like the year for them. Um, you know, I think you could point to some different spots. Um, you know, they've got their goalkeeper now, you know, maybe I think they've answered the questions with, with number nine, you've got Balser, you've got Heidema brought in. Um, you know, you've obviously got Lavelle in the 10, you have Quinn, you have Fishlock, you know, I don't see any like real big personnel problems here. So it's a bit of an enigma, the rain. Uh, they are a bit of an enigma that, you know, continues, you know, obviously 14, 15 unlucky. Um, I don't have a great answer for you here because everything that I would say in terms of they need that last player on the roster, they need that last little game changer. I mean, they went out, they brought in Tobin Heath midseason to be that person to a roster that was already roughly where it needed to be. They brought in Heidema midseason. So they've done what they needed to do. So um, where where it goes from here, um, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I mean... Um, it's it's a tough one, and I think that you know if you're Rain fans, you're rightful to be disappointed. Um, I guess my my more pointed answer here is, I think that they've got the talent that they need, and and now it's on them, and them being the players, them being Laura Harvey and her staff to figure out how to finally make that work in November. I mean that's that's the bottom line. They've got who they need. I'm sure they'll make some further additions, um, but you know they've got depth. They've got talent in their starting 11 across the pitch. So I don't think there's problems there. I, I think the, the issue is is maybe mental more than anything at this point. Um, and even that, that's a, that's a lazy thing to say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chastise myself for that mental. It's not solely mental, but it, it's figuring it out in that moment, in the playoffs, in the, the in-game management, and, and winning a knockout game and then winning another one. Um, that's, that's the bottom line because who they have should be getting that done. Uh, last question that I've got written down, and, and so we don't run too long, uh, from David Wind. Uh, an easy one, actually. Is is Haran returning to Portland after her loan ends? Yes, that was part of the deal. Um, Lindsay Haran is on loan with Leon. She left last winter, about a year ago at this point. Um, that is that is something that she wanted to do, that she had talked about doing well before that was announced. I believe it was announced in January of 2022. Um, that was in the works for six or eight months at that point. Um, and, and Portland knew that. So part of the deal there was Portland allowed her to go on the loan while making an extension to her current contract with Portland. So, uh, she's due to be back. We can call it mid season, but I mean, the French league, the European season is going to run until 
roughly when the U.S. will organize for the World Cup, then she'll go to the World Cup. So I wouldn't expect to see her in Portland until September of 23, uh, but she will be back for that tail end of that season, and then she's under contract through 2024. So um, the end of next year and then a whole other season uh, she's under contract for uh, after her loan at Leon ends. Uh, that's all I've got written down. Uh, we have plenty of questions. Appreciate all of them. Um, thank you. If I didn't get to it, sorry, I've gone pretty long here already. But I guess that's the mailbag style, um, which is, is fun for me. I hope it's fun for you. Happy to answer questions. Uh, we can do this more often in audio format. We've done it on Twitter Spaces before. Maybe we'll do that if uh, Twitter Spaces keeps working in the future. Uh, we'll do it again here on the pod, and we'll do it again in written form. We've done it for subscribers before in written form. And once again, I will say equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. That is where all of our premium content is. Go ahead, take a look, and um, looking forward to bringing you more there. I'll see you there. Thank you for joining me on this mailbag edition of the Equalizer Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kasouf. Thank you to our producer, Jacqueline Purdy, who does a ton behind the scenes. And I uh, look forward to coming back with you again next time soon.